Uh, thank you for being here. It's such an honor. Uh, my name is Caleb Cunningham. Uh, you may hear the accent. I'm not from Los Angeles. Uh, born and raised in Georgia. Moved out here six years ago to attend the Master's Seminary. Uh, I graduated last year. Uh, I got hired full-time on staff. I work here at Grace Community Church uh, in several roles, mainly in children's ministry and then in foundation. It's a young adults uh, ministry on Friday night. Um, I have many hats. I love what I do. I love our church. Uh, this church has meant so much to me and my family. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, both of our girls, me and my wife Haley, have two daughters. Um, they have a rare lung disease. I've had a lot of hospital trips, uh, a lot of medicine, a lot of surgeries. Um, and so we love this church because many of you have just taken care of us over the past years, loved on us, um, and just have welcomed us here. I can't express enough how much I love Grace Community Church. Not because of the preaching, which I love, and the teaching, and all the resources, which I do love, but it's because of the people. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say, generally speaking, people at Grace Community Church care about their salvation, care about their walk with Christ, and that's, that's rare. Um, so I, I love this place. I love the people. Um, if you ever want to serve in children's ministry or foundation, I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, and again, I'm just grateful. Well, I think we go ahead and get started. Uh, I've been told this screen for some reason is broken. I'm not an IT guy or do anything of that nature. Um, so I'm sorry for the people sitting over here. Hopefully you can uh, see the middle screen. There's some more seats on this side in the middle. You can sit on the front row. I won't bite or spit. And so, um, if you want to see the screens, um, the history of the English Bible. Let's go ahead and get started. 717. That's the number of languages with a complete Bible. 717. And there are only a little over 7,000 total languages in the world. And that's a 9.7%, basically 10% in the world of people who have a complete Bible. So being able to read the Bible freely in your own language is a gift. The Word of God is one of the greatest gifts that He has given His children. And aside from Jesus Christ, aside from the Holy Spirit, there is nothing greater than the Bible. It is full of truth, conviction, passion, and love from the God of the universe to His people. What a gift that you hold in your hands. What a precious gift that you have an English Bible. And what greater investment we could possibly make in this life than spend time to wrestling and studying the Word of God. Having a Bible is a gift. It's a precious gift from God Himself. A precious gift from heaven. And there have been many brave people throughout history in the providence of God who has given us that gift. And my prayer this morning is that you'll leave this place loving your Bible, cherishing your Bible. Centuries ago, church leaders were the only ones who could read the Bible. And these church leaders thought if common people could read the Bible, 
the common people would question the church leader's authority. And this placed a barrier between uh, the people and the word of God. And the, the only church that existed in this time was the Roman Catholic Church. And church was not voluntary. It was mandatory. And believers obediently followed the priests during the Catholic Mass. And priests, would they would face the altar. They would face away from the congregation. And they spoke in Latin. And they read the Bible in Latin. And people didn't even know Latin. And by obediently following the priests and doing all those things, the congregation believed that this was their true path to heaven. That's what they believed. Then long came a man named John Wycliffe. Wycliffe. Uh, the 14th century was a dark time for the people of God. There was man-made traditions and religious superstitions that had risen to dominate the church and suffocate its life. Uh, the true gospel light was being dimmed, and it was almost extinguished. The truth of God was buried under the debris of error spanning centuries. And it was during this dismissal world scene that a prominent English theologian named John Wycliffe, he stepped onto the stage of history. Uh, The religious scene in England was pitch black. Spiritual authority was not founded on scripture, but on quotes from church fathers or church tradition, councils, and the Pope himself. So from the pulpit to the pew, the church was filled with unconverted people who were held captive in the chains of unbelief. John Fox, author of the Fox of Books of Martyrs, he he described this dark hour. He said, Christianity was in a sad state. Although everyone knew the name of Christ, few, if any, understood his doctrine. And to confront these issues... Wycliffe stepped to the forefront to change the course of English history. He was the most learned scholar of his day. He was a professor at Oxford University, the the top school in Europe. He was known as the Morning Star of the Reformation, which is a great nickname. In the night sky, the Morning Star is the celestial body that, that shines brightest during the final hour of darkness immediately before the dawn. And in the same way, Wycliffe's role was to resurrect the first glimmer of the gospel truth by translating the Bible into English. And this monumental undertaking was driven by his deep conviction that the Bible is the word of God and must be in the hands of the people. He said this, I wish manuscripts of the New Testament and the Old Testament to be read and studied in the common tongue. But the Roman Catholic Church refused to translate the Bible into the native tongue of the Englishmen because they would lose their spiritual control over them. All that was available was a Latin Bible, uh, the Vulgate, and the common person could not read Latin. To date, during this time period, the average English person lived their entire life, lived their entire life without ever seeing a copy of the Scripture much less being able to read it with their own language. Can you imagine that today? Your whole life you never saw a copy of Scripture in your language, much less heard it. But Wycliffe, he he was determined to change this by launching this task of translating the Bible into English. And once Scripture would be in the hands of the people, he knew that heart transformation would spread like wildfire. And with the help of his followers called the Lollards and his assistants and many other faithful scribes, 
Wycliffe produced dozens of English-language manuscript copies of the Scriptures. The first handwritten English Bible manuscripts were produced in the 1380s by Wycliffe. And because Wycliffe and his Bible encouraged Christians to think for themselves, uh, the power of the church and the Pope were threatened, and his Bible was banned. And some who read it were branded as heretics, and some were burned at the stake. Fear, flames, and fire came between the common people and the Bible. But Wycliffe did not care. He, he knew what needed to be done. He knew that people needed the word of God. He knew that people needed to know the gospel. The Pope was so furious by Wycliffe, of, of Wycliffe for his translation of the Bible that 44 years after Wycliffe died, the Pope ordered the bones to be dug up, crushed, and scattered in the river. They hated this man for translating the Bible. Uh, Steve Lawson said uh, this about Wycliffe translating the Bible into English. He said, for this heroic accomplishment, Wycliffe will long be recognized as a valiant warrior of the truth of Scripture. We all owe a debt to John Wycliffe. He was a forerunner of the Reformation and a forerunner of the English Bible translation, leaving a testimony of faithfulness and boldness. He stared danger in the face over and over again so that you and I can have our Bibles today. Uh, one of his followers, the next person, John Huss, he actively promoted Wycliffe's idea that people should be permitted to read the Bible in their own language, and they should oppose the Roman church that threatened anyone possessing a non-Latin Bible. He was commanded to recant uh, the following, uh, following the teachings of Wycliffe. Huss said this, If I yet please men... I should not be the servant of Christ. Huss was burned at the stake in 1415 with Wycliffe's manuscript Bibles used as the kindling for the fire. That's what they used to light the fire to burn him at the stake was these copies of the English translation. And that's what happens when you get the Bible into the language of the people. Souls are saved. Lives are changed. People are following Christ knowing it will cost them everything. They're not scared of fire or the Pope or flames. They want the Bible to be out there. Then came Gutenberg. Gutenberg invented the press in the 1450s, and the first book ever to be printed was a Latin language Bible printed in Germany. Gutenberg's Bibles were beautiful as each leaf Gutenberg printed was later colorfully hand-illuminated. Ironically, though, he, what he had created to be the most important invention in history, what people believed. He, he was a victim of corrupt business associates who took control of his business and left him in poverty. Nevertheless, this invention of the printing press meant that Bibles and books could finally be effectively produced and produced in large quantities in a short period of time. He said this about his invention. It is a press, certainly, but a press from which shall flow in inexhaustible streams. Through it, God will spread his word. A spring of truth shall flow from it, like a new star shall scatter the darkness of ignorance and cause a light hereto unknown to shine amongst men. The printing of the Bible for the masses encouraged each believer to read God's word. 
implying that everyone is responsible for their own salvation. Gutenberg's efforts ensured that Christianity did not end at the church door. Rather, it made every believer's house a training ground. That's what it did. In the 1490s, another Oxford professor and personal physician to King Henry VII and VIII, Thomas Lenecre, he decided to learn Greek, which is probably not the best, probably the most fun hobby I would recommend personally. It's very hard. But this is what he decided to do. And after reading the Gospels in Greek and comparing it to the Latin Vulgate, he wrote this in his diary. Either this, the original Greek, is not the Gospel or we are not Christians. In other words, the Latin had become so corrupt that it no longer preserved the purity, the the message of the gospel. But the church still threatened to kill anyone who read the scripture in any language other than Latin, even though Latin was not an original language of the scriptures. The king, the pope, and other leaders wanted to kill anyone who read or even had a Bible in their own language. In 1496, John Collette, another Oxford professor and the son of the mayor of London, he also started reading the New Testament in Greek and translating it into English for his students and later for the public at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. The people were so hungry to hear the word of God in a language they could understand and that within six months, there were 20,000 people packed in the church and at least that many outside just trying to get in so they can hear the word of God in their language. And Colette said himself, he is just speaking out of zeal, a man sorrowing for the ruin of the church. He knew that the church was dying or already dead. He knew people were hungry for the word of God. He knew they needed a Bible in their own language. And considering the experiences of Leonard Cray and Colette, the, there's a great scholar by the name of Erasmus. And he was also, uh, he was a student under these men at Oxford. And he was so moved to correct the corrupt Latin Vulgate that in 1516, Erasmus published a Greek-Latin parallel New Testament. The Latin, was, Latin part was not the corrupt Vulgate, but his own fresh rendering of the text from the more accurate and reliable Greek. And this milestone was the first non-Latin Vulgate text of the Scripture to be produced. The 1516 Greek-Latin New Testament of Erasmus further focused attention on just how corrupt and inaccurate the Latin Vulgate had become and how important it was to go back to the use of the, the Greek, which is the New Testament, and the original Hebrew, which is the Old Testament, to maintain its accuracy and to translate them faithfully into the languages of the common people whether that be English, German, or any other tongue. Uh, Historian David Daniel, he describes the magnitude of this event. He said, this was the first time that the Greek New Testament had been printed. It is no exaggeration to say that it set fire to Europe. Luther translated it into his famous German version. In a few years, there appeared translations from the Greek into the most European vernaculars. This was the true basis of the popular Reformation. Erasmus knew that the word of God changes lives, and he knew it would spread like fire. He knew that. And then along came William Tyndale. You need to know William Tyndale. He was the captain of the army of the reformers. 
Tyndale holds the distinction of being the first man to ever print the New Testament in the English language from the original languages and not the Latin Vulgate. This was the driving passion of his life, to see the Bible translated from the Greek and in the Hebrew into ordinary English language available for every person to read. He was a true scholar and a genius. He was so fluent in eight languages. It was said that when he started speaking in one language, he was so fluent, you thought that was his common tongue. And this man was brilliant. He's frequently referred to as the architect of the English language, even more so than William Shakespeare. As so many of the phrases that we use today, Tyndale coined. And when he was 28 years old in 1522, He was serving as a tutor in the home of John Walsh, spending most of his time studying Erasmus' Greek New Testament, which had just been printed six years before. And every day as he read this, Tyndale was seeing these Reformation truths more clearly. They, They spoke to his mind. They spoke to his soul. They spoke to his heart. And he was even, you know, even as an ordained Catholic priest. And just remind you, this was bad. Ordained Catholic priests were not supposed to read this stuff. They were not supposed to spread this stuff, but Tyndale did not care. John Fox tells us that one day an an exasperated Catholic scholar at dinner with Tyndale said this, we were better to be without God's law than the Pope's. In other words, forget what God's word says. It's all about the Pope. And Tyndale responded with these famous words, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, I will see to it that the boy who drives a plowshare knows more of the scripture than you, sir. He was determined to get the Bible into everyday people, even so that a boy would know more of the word of God than the Pope himself. Four years later, Tyndale finished the English translation of the Greek New Testament in Germany, and he began to smuggle it into into England in bales of cloth. In 1534, he published a revised New Testament after learning Hebrew in the meantime, which was probably in Germany where he was, which helped him better understand the connections between the Old Testament and New Testament. This man was always studying, always trying to make it better. He wanted the people to have the best translation possible. Daniel, the premier scholar of Tyndale, in his wonderful book, I highly encourage it, he he calls this 1534 New Testament the glory of his life's work. If Tyndale was always singing one note, if you will, or one thing that dominated his life that drove him was the finished and refined New Testament in English. That's what he lived for. And for the first time ever in history, the Greek New Testament was translated into English. And for the first time in history, the New Testament in English was available in printed form for the people. Tyndale's craftsmanship was the English language. It was amounted to genius. He translated two-thirds of the Bible so well that his translations endured even to the day. This was not a merely a a literary event or a literary wonder. It was a spiritual explosion. His Bible and writings were the fire that set to the Reformation in England. So what did it cost William Tyndale 
under these hostile circumstances to stay faithful to his calling as a translator of the word of God. Well, Tyndale was captured and he was imprisoned for 18 months. He was charged with heresy for translating the Bible into English. He never had a chance to finish the Old Testament. And those months in prison were not easy. And they were long days leading to his death. And we get one glimpse into the prison to see his condition and his passion. He wrote a letter in September 1535, and it was addressed to an unnamed officer at the castle. And he said this, I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissionary or the captain to, to have the kindness to send to me from the goods of mine, which he has a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin. A piece of cloth too, please, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if, he's, if he will be good enough to send it to me. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening because it is wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg you and beseech you, your clemency, to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew grammar, and the Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. The man was suffering. But he wanted these tools because he loved the word of God. He loved the Bible. And he had a passion to translate it into English for everyone in the world. We don't know if his requests were granted. He stayed in that prison through the winter and his verdict was sealed in August 1536. He was condemned as a heretic, and he was degraded from the priesthood. Then in early October, this heroic figure, he died a martyr's death by being strangled to death with an iron chain, after which his corpse was burned, and then it was blown up by the gunpowder that had been spread around his body. They hung him, They burned him, and they blew him up, all for translating the Bible into English. He was 42 years old. He was never married and never buried. He loved the Word of God. Uh, This painting that's shown of him on the screen is very neat. It's painted in oil on on canvas. The original work is from the brush of an unknown artist. It was produced in the late 17th or early 18th century, and it now hangs in the National Portrait Gallery in London. And as the subject of the portrait, Tyndale is seated, dressed all in black, surrounded by a subdued dark background. His face and his hands seem to glow from the light of a candle that's hidden from the view. His left hand is balancing a book, keeping it horizontal so it won't fall. This book is a Bible which he was devoted to. His right hand appears to be resting on a dark table while his right index finger is pointing to the Bible. He's directing the observer's attention away from himself and instead drawing every eye toward this sacred book in which he absolutely believed and to which he dedicated his whole life to. 
He loved the Word of God. And beneath the Bible, the artist artist has painted a banner and signifying that Tyndale is an Oxford and Cambridge scholar. The, The writing on the banner is in Latin. In English, it translates this. To scatter Roman darkness by this light, the loss of land and life I will reckon slight. This bold message represents the life mission of William Tyndale. By translating the Bible into English, this brilliant man, he ignited the flame that would banish the spiritual darkness in England. His translations of the scripture unveil the divine light of biblical truth that would shine across the English-speaking world, ushering in the dawning of a new day. The irony of this portrait to me is that Tyndale never sat for his portrait to be done. To to protect his identity, he could not have his facial likeness reproduced onto canvas. The work he carried out came at too high of price for him to be recognized. Only after his gruesome death will William Tyndale be known. Today, there are only two known copies left of Tyndale's 1525 first edition, and any copies printed prior to 1570 are extremely valuable. The Master Seminary was gifted with a 1534 Tyndale New Testament. This is it. Now, you have a chance to come look at it after. This is what it looked like. This is a New Testament. This is what this man died for. There's only two copies in the world. This is how valuable this is. And Tyndale gave his life so that people can have the word of God in their hands. I'm just overwhelmed when the first time I saw this, I'm just overwhelmed. What a gift that we have. What a gift that you and I have. This man died for this little Bible so that people can know the gospel that people can know God. Holding this Bible and learning about Tyndale constantly reminds me of the invaluable treasure that you and I have, the English Bible. Lawson writes in his excellent book on Tyndale, highly recommend it. Whatever your Bible translation is, it stands on the shoulders of one man, William Tyndale. You and I owe a lot to this man. I want you to know that your Bible has bloodstains on it. (laughs) Cherish it. Taste the sweetness of it. Absorb it. Memorize it. Teach it. Live it. Love it. Spread it. John Fox reports that Tyndale's last words were this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Tyndale wanted a king to know how important it was for the people to have a Bible in their language. And this prayer will be answered just three years later in 1539 when King Henry VIII finally allowed and even funded the printing of an English Bible known as the Great Bible. But before that could happen, there were two men, Miles Coverdale and John Rogers. They remained loyal disciples the last six years of Tyndale's life, and they carried the English Bible project forward and even accelerated it. Coverdale finished translating the Old Testament, and, and in 1535, he printed the first complete Bible in the English language. However, rather than translating, the, translating from the original languages, 
Coverdale translated from Luther's Old Testament and the Latin Vulgate. And it's known as the Coverdale Bible. And Coverdale loved the word and he eagerly exhorted everyone from the king to the common guy to read it. In the prologue of the Coverdale Bible, he wrote this, For as soon as the Bible was cast aside and no more put into exercise, then began every one of his own head, every one of his own head to write whatsoever came into his brain. And that seemed to be good in his own eyes. And so grew the darkness of men's traditions. John Rogers, he went on to, to print the second complete English Bible in 1537. He, Rogers met Tyndale in Holland. They became friends, and Tyndale was a big part in John Rogers' conversion. Uh, Tyndale converted Rogers to Protestant views, and Rogers, who was a former priest, he even married someone, which is a big no-no. And after Tyndale died, Rogers came into possession of all of the Old Testament translation work that Tyndale had done. And he set out to complete Tyndale's translation for original languages, which distinguished it from the Coverdale Bible. Uh, Rogers did this work under the pen name Thomas Matthew. So the Bible was called the Matthew's Bible. And in 1547, King Edward VI came to the throne of England. And being a Protestant, Edward afforded freedom of worship, which the land enjoyed for a brief season. And it's during this that Rogers gained prominence or popularity in the leadership of the English Reformation. But things changed quickly with the death of Edward and the coming of Queen Mary or Bloody Mary as she came to be known. Her sentiments were just the opposite of Edward's. She was a devout Catholic who hated the Protestants and hated freedom of worship. And Rogers was eventually made a prisoner. He got caught. First he was at home, then he was in jail in England. And his wife was not even allowed to visit him at all and Apparently, Rogers suffered the, some, some of the most severe treatments from the jailers. And he was pressured to compromise and renounce the Protestant faith. But he affirmed that he would not. He affirmed that he would stand his ground. He affirmed that he would stand to the truth of the God's word. And he affirmed that he would finish this project. And his death was soon to follow. And when the time came for his execution, he was brought by the sheriffs of Newgate to Smithfield, where the following conversation took place. And it's simply amazing. One of the officers asked Rogers if he would evoke his horrible doctrine and his evil opinion of the sacrifice of the mass. And Rogers replied this, that which I have preached, I will seal with my own blood. Then said the clergy, you are a heretic. And Rogers responded, that sh- shall be known at the day of judgment. He knew the truth. He knew he was right. Rogers was then brought to the stake, and he was quoting a psalm as he came with thousands of people who witnessed his testimony, who, who rejoiced at his constant firmness in the face of fire. His own wife and 11 children met him on the road as he went to the stake, the youngest who he never met, the youngest child who he never met, he's never seen before, being a nursing infant in his mother's arms. When he was attached to the post, the fire was put under him. And when he had taken hold of his legs and his shoulders, he, as, he, as if he's feeling no pain, he washed his hands in the flame, in the fire. 
as if it was cold water. And after lifting up his hands to heaven, not removing the fire, not removing them until the fire had devoured them, mildly and firmly, this happy and joyful martyr yielded up his spirit and he was immediately in the presence of his heavenly father. Even a few moments before his death, a written pardon was brought to him if he were recant, but he refused. Rogers gave his life for Christ. He gave his life for the gospel. He gave his life to get the Bible into the English language. And then we come to 1539, a man by the name of Thomas Kramer. Um, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he hired Miles Coverdale at the request of King Henry VIII to publish the Great Bible. It became the first English Bible authorized for public use, and it was distributed to every church. It was chained to the pulpits, and a reader was even provided so that the illiterate could hear the Word of God in plain English. It was seen that Tyndale's last wish had been granted just three years after his martyrdom. And this Bible, published by Coverdale, was known as the Great Bible to his great size. I mean, this thing was massive. It was over 14 inches tall. The thing was huge. And seven editions of this version were printed between 1539 and 1541, monumental in the history of the English Bible. And King Henry VIII, he did not have a change of conscience regarding publishing the Bible in English like the rulers before him. His motives were more sinister, more evil, but we know that the Lord sometimes uses evil intentions of men to bring about his glory. King Henry VIII had, in fact, requested that the Pope permit him to divorce his wife and marry his mistress, but the Pope refused. So King Henry responded by marrying his mistresses anyway, later having many of his wives executed. And he just thumbed his nose at the Pope by renouncing Roman Catholicism. And so he took England out from under Rome's religious control, and he declared himself as the reigning head of the state to also be the new head of the church. And this new branch of the Christian church, neither Roman Catholic nor truly Protestant, became known as the Anglican Church or the Church of England. And King Henry acted essentially as the Pope or as the leader. His first act was to further defy the wishes of Rome by funding the print printing of scriptures in English, the first legal English Bible. He did this just for spite. And the flow of freedom, it continued up and down through the 1540s into the 1550s. And after King Henry uh, VI took the throne, and after his death, we have Queen Bloody Mary. She was the next obstacle to the printing of the Bible in English. And she was possessed in her quest to return to England to the Roman church. And as we saw earlier, John Rogers and Thomas Cramer were both burned at the stake. And Bloody Mary, she went on to burn reformers at the stake by the hundreds for the crime of just being Protestant. I mean, she hated them. This era was known as the Marian Exile, and their refugees fled from England with little hope of ever seeing their home or their family or their friends again. And in the 1550s, the church at Geneva, Switzerland, they were very sympathetic to these refugees and was one of only few safe havens for a desperate people. Many of them met in Geneva, led by Miles Coverdale and John Fox. John Fox, he's the publisher of the famous 
box of books for martyrs. If you don't have a copy, you need to get one, which is to this day the only exhaustive reference work on the persecution and martyrdom of the English early Christians and Protestants from the first century up to the mid-16th century. You need a copy of this book. It will stir your soul. They're hard to get in the bookstore, no offense to them, ordered on Amazon or used bookstores. You need to get one. And these refugees, they were under the protection of John Calvin and John Knox. And the Church of Geneva, they determined to produce a Bible that would educate their families while they were in exile. And out of that, out of that, the New Testament was completed in 1557, and the complete Bible was first published in 1560. It was known as the Geneva Bible. Uh, and due to a passage in Genesis, I thought this was interesting, describing the clothing that God fashioned for Adam and Eve upon from the Garden of Eden as breeches, as in the South we say breeches, breeches. Some people refer to the Geneva Bible as the breeches Bible, the breeches Bible. It's very interesting. And the Geneva Bible, it was the first Bible to add numbered verses to the chapters. Think about that. Think about your Bible. You wouldn't have numbered verses or chapters. You know where John 3.16 is, right? You know where Philippians 1.21 is. You know where Genesis 3.15 is. That's all because of this Bible, the Geneva Bible. And every chapter, chapter was also accompanied by extensive marginal notes and references. And so that this Bible is also considered the first English study Bible, the study Bible. William Shakespeare quotes hundreds of times in his plays from the Geneva translation of the Bible. And this Geneva Bible became the Bible of choice for over 100 years of English-speaking Christians. And between 1560 and 1644, at least 144 editions of this Bible were published. Examination of the 1611 King James Bible, which some of you may have, shows clearly that its translators were influenced much more by the Geneva Bible than any other source. The Geneva Bible itself retains over 90% of William Tyndale's original English translation. Again, shows the genius of that man. Uh, the Geneva, in fact, it remained more popular than the King James Version until decades after its release in 1611. And the Geneva holds the honor being the first Bible taken to America. And it was the Bible of the Puritans and the pilgrims. It is truly the Bible of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, strangely, this famous Bible has been out of print since 1644. So the only way to obtain one is to purchase one. It costs a lot of money, if you can imagine. Or you can find a less costly replica or reproduction of the original 1560 Geneva Bible, which you can find on Amazon. And it's way cheaper, the replica. It's very monumental. And with the end of Queen Mary's bloody reign, the reformers could safely return to England. In the Anglican Church, now under Queen Elizabeth I, it tolerated the printing and distribution of Geneva Version Bibles in England. And their marginal notes, which were strongly against the church of the day, it did not rest well with the rulers. Another version, one with a less, a less inflammatory tone was desired because the copies of the Great Bible were getting to be decades old. 
1568, the revision of the great Bible known as the Bishop's Bible was introduced. It was referred to the rough draft of the King James Version. It never gained much popularity, never really got big, but it was very important. The Geneva may have simply been too much to compete with because it just was so popular. Then with the death of Queen Elizabeth I, Prince James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. And the Protestant clergy, they approached the new king in 1604 and announced their desire for a new translation to replace the bishop's Bible. And they knew that the Geneva version had won the hearts of the people because of its accuracy and scholarship and its commentary. However, they did not want the controversial marginal notes proclaiming that the Pope was anti-Christ and things of that nature. They didn't want to put that in there. They just desired a Bible for the people with scriptural references only for word clarification or cross-references. This translation, to end all translations, for a while at least, was the result of the combined effort for about 50 scholars. They looked at the Tyndale New Testament, the Coverdale Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible. In 1605 to 1606, for a year, the scholars engaged in private research. Then two years later, the work was assembled. 1610, the work went to press. And in 1611, the first of huge 16-inch tall pulpit known as the 1611 King James Bible came off the printing press. Starting just one year after this huge 1611 pulpit-sized King James Bible was printed, and they were chained to every church in the pulpit in England. And printing then began on the earliest normal-sized printings of the King James Bible. They, they wanted to print them so that individuals could have their own personal copy of the Bible. And the Anglican Church's King James Bible took decades to overcome the more popular Protestant Church's Geneva Bible. And one of the greatest ironies of history to me is that many Protestant Christian churches today embrace the King James Bible exclusively as the only legitimate English translation. I mean, have you ever heard that? It's a big thing in the South. I, I remember preaching in the South. This old man came up to me and he's like, son, he's an old man. I mean, I think he was like a, a, a vet. I mean, this man was old. I've known him my whole life. And he was like, young man, what translation of the Bible do you use? And at that time, I was an ESV. And I said, like, ESV. And he said, well, I got the King James. And if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> and I, I wanted to do what you just did. I wanted to laugh. And he was serious. I was like, oh. I was like, yes, sir. I didn't even know what to say. I didn't want to correct him. I mean, he's like 92. And he's like, you know. I'm just... But it's just so funny. So many people think, that the King James Bible is the only legitimate English translation, but yet it's not even a Protestant translation. <laughs> it's so funny to me. It was printed to compete with the Protestant Geneva Bible by authorities who throughout most of history were hostile to Protestants. They wanted to kill them. The people who tr printed the King James Bible wanted to kill Protestants. And while many Protestants are quick to assign the full blame of persecution to the Roman Catholic Church, it should be noted that after England broke from Roman Catholicism, 
The Church of England continued to persecute Christians throughout the 1600s. One famous example of this is John Bunyan. Many of you know that name. He's in prison for the crime of preaching the gospel, who wrote one of Christian history's, one of the Christian history's greatest books, Pilgrim's Progress. And throughout those 1600s, as the Puritans and the Pilgrims fled the religious persecution of England to cross the Atlantic and start a new free nation in America, the old glory, USA, they, they took with them their precious Geneva Bible and they rejected the King James Bible. America was founded upon the Geneva Bible, not the King James Bible. I just want you to know that. It was not on, founded upon the King James. It was founded upon the Geneva Bible. Protestants today, Protestants today, you, me, our history were, is largely unaware and unaware of the Geneva Bible, which is textually 95% is the same as the King James Version. If you look at the King James Version, it's 95% the same as the Geneva Bible. But nevertheless, the King James Bible, it turned out to be an excellent and accurate translation, and it became the most printed book in the history of the world. The only book with one billion copies in print, one billion with a B. In fact, for over 250 years, the King James Version reigned without much of a a rival. One little known fact is that for the past 200 years, all King James Bibles published in America are actually the 1769 Bakersfield spelling and wording revision of the 1611. It's the 1769 Bakersfield King James. The original 1611 Preface is included by the publishers, but no faction to mention, no fact that it's the 1769. They did this because of sales. So if you own a King James Bible today, if you go buy one, it's not the original 1611. It's actually a 1769. They kept it in there to make some money. That's what they were worried about, the pocketbook. The only way to obtain a true, unaltered 1611 version is either to purchase, again, very, very expensive, purchase an original pre-1769 printing of the King James Bible or a less costly bad reproduction of the original 16. Monumental translation in the history of the Bible. Then we come to the colonies. And although the first Bible printed in America was done in the native Indian language by John Eliot in 1663, The first English-language Bible to be printed in America was by Robert Aiken in 1782 with a King James Version. Aiken's 1782 Bible was also the only Bible ever authorized by the United States Congress. He was commended by President George Washington for, for providing the Americans with Bibles during the restraint of imported English goods due to the Revolutionary War. In 1808, after he died, his daughter, Jane Aiken, one of the first women printers in the early United States and the first woman in the U.S. to print an English translation of the Bible. She was also a publisher, a bookbinder, bookseller, a businesswoman, a time when the independence of women was actively discouraged. 1791, Isaac Collins, he vastly improved the quality and size of typesetting of American Bibles, and he produced the first family Bible printed in America, which which is also a King James. In 1791, Isaiah Thomas, not the basketball player if you watch the NBA, (laughs) Isaiah Thomas, he was published by, published the first illustrated Bible printed in America, was also in the King James. Then we also have Noah Webster, 
just a few years after, after producing his famous dictionary. You probably know it, the Webster's Dictionary of the English Language. He would produce his own modern translation of the English Bible in 1833. The public still remained loyal to the King James, even the, for Webster's version to have much impact. It was not really until the 1880s that England's own planned replacement for the King James Bible, the English Revised Version, would become the first English language Bible to gain popular acceptance, acceptance as a post-King James modern English Bible. The, the widespread popularity of this modern English translation brought with it another curious characteristics, the absence of the 14 Apocrypha books. Basically, that, what that is, it has the Roman Catholic Church, what they believe, what they practice, which is not in agreement with the Bible. It was not until the 1880s, every Protestant Bible, not just the Catholic Bibles, had 80 books, not 66 books. That's when we had all the canon, and we won't go into the details of that. It's very interesting, though. And those books were part of virtually every printing of the Tyndale Matthews Bible, the Greek Bible, those 80 books, the Bishop's Bible, the Protestant Geneva Bible, and then the King James Bible until their removal in the 1880s. The original 1611 James, King James, it contained the Apocrypha, and King James threatened anyone who dared to print the Bible without that with heavy fines and a year in jail. And only for the last 120 years has the Protestant church rejected those books and removed them from their Bibles. Very interesting. And the Americans, they responded to England's ERV Bible by publish, publishing the nearly identical American Standard Version, or the ASV, in 1901. It's also widely accepted and, and is embraced by churches throughout America for many decades as the leading modern English version of the Bible. And in 1971, it was again revised, and it was called the New American Standard Version, often referred to as the NASV or the NASB or the NAS. This New American Standard Bible is considered by nearly all evangelical Christian scholars or translators today to be the most accurate word-for-word translation of the original Greek and Hebrew scriptures into the modern English language that has ever been produced. In 1995, the NASB went through an update, and they removed the archaic language of the thee, thou's, and thy's. It remains the most popular version among Christians, among theologians, professors, scholars, and seminary students today. Many of you may have an NASB 95. That's what I use. That's what our pastor, John, that's what he preaches from in the pulpit, the New America Standard 1995 version. Some, however, they have taken issue with it because it's so direct and literal, so focused on accuracy that it does not flow as easily in conversational English. So for that reason, in 1973, the new international version, the NIV, was produced, which was offered as a dynamic equivalent into modern English. It was designed not for word-for-word accuracy, but for -for phrase-for-phrase accuracy and an ease of reading even at a junior high Uh, junior high school reading level. It was meant to appeal to a broader cross-section of the generic public. Then in 1982, Thomas Nelson Publishers produced what they called the New King James Version. Their original intent was to keep the basic wording of the King James to to appeal to the King James loyalists. 
while only changing the most obscure words and the, taking out the thee, thou, those pronouns. It was an interesting market ploy, I think, um, upon discovering that this was not enough of a change for them to be able to legally copyright, copyright the result. They had to make a lot of significant revisions, which defeated their purpose of doing this in the first place. It was never really taken seriously by scholars, but it has enjoyed some degree of public acceptance. You may have a New King James Version. It really is. I actually enjoy the New King James Version myself. Highly recommend you looking at it. Then in 2002, scholars came out with a new translation called the English Standard Version, or the ESV. You may have it. It's very popular for its readability and accuracy. Translation of the ESV was led by a 14-member translation oversight committee, which J.I. Packer, if you don't know him, read some of his books. I will start with Knowing God. J.I. Packer served as the general editor. ESV is very popular. Then in 2020, some men met, one being our pastor, to explore the idea of an update to the NASB 95. Uh, the vision was twofold, to update some of the language of the NASB while preserving the accuracy and trustworthiness of the translation for generations to come. Working directly from the original languages to update the text of the NASB 95, the goal of the LSB to preser- was to preserve and honor its predecessors, and that was accomplished. Uh, the Legacy Standard Bible was completed by a team of scholars from the Master's Seminary University, which I, th- which I think is neat. They did this in a year. How many men is that? One, two, three, four, five, six. Is that six? I count that right? Seven? Seven? Seven men did this in a year. Granted, it was COVID. They had nothing going on. <laughs> so it's not really that impressive. Not, nobody was doing anything, you know? And so, but in all serious, it's unreal what they accomplished. If you don't have an LSB, I encourage you to check it out. It's really good and an amazing job. It's a good translation. So by way of conclusion, let me ask you this question. That was a lot, a lot of history, and there's so much more. Let me ask you this question. Can you imagine never having heard a single word from God in your own language? Can you imagine never having heard a single word from God in your own language. Think about that. English-speaking Christians have many options when it comes to finding a Bible translation. BibleGateway.com, which is a Bible study website, it currently offers more than 60 different English translations. 60. And with so many translations available, it's easy to take it for granted that you have an English Bible to read. Which begs for the question, do you read your Bible? Do you read it? As we've seen, it's not always been easy, though, has it? It costs a lot. Uh, There was a time when translating or reading the Bible in English was a crime punishable by death. And many men and women died for translating, distributing, and defending the right to own an English Bible. You must remember that the main purpose of the Reformation was to get the Bible out of the chains of being trapped in ancient language that only a few can understand and into the modern, spoken, conversational language of the present day. In other words, people like me and you. 
William Tyndale fought and died for the right to print the Bible in common spoken modern English tongue of his day. And as he boldly told one official who criticized his efforts, if God spare my life, I will see to it that the boy who drives the plowshare knows more of the scripture than you. That statement became true. Let me ask you again. Can you imagine never having heard a single word from God in your own language? Think about where you would be. You wouldn't be here, probably. Men and women have suffered to give you the word of God. There are bloodstains on your Bible. The smell of fire is on your Bible. The gunpowder is still fresh on your Bible. Men and women have worked hard to get the Bible in your language. Men and women have died to make sure you know the gospel. What is the gospel? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Can you read that? No. Next slide. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that every man that believeth in him perish not, but have everlasting life. Tyndale, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that none that believe in him should perish but everlasting life. The great Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. First edition, King James, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. ASV, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever shall believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. The NASB, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What is the gospel? God is holy. And as we say in the South, you ain't. You are a sinner that deserves his full wrath and judgment. But in his mercy and grace, God sent his son Jesus into the world to die for your sins. So why is it important to talk about the history of the English Bible? God preordained all this to happen so that you can know him through his word. So that you can know his gospel. So that you can know Jesus. So that you can know how to live as a Christian. There is no book like the Christian Bible. This book should be your best friend. 
please understand it's a privilege to have a copy of God's word that you can read. And if you have one, it's the most valuable thing you own because you have what you have in your Bible are the very words of the creator and the redeemer of the universe. And it's been said that the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow's newspaper. And that's true. And it's relevant to your life because it is divinely inspired. It's infallible. It's authoritative. Therefore, I exhort you with this. This is the biggest thing I want you to walk away with today. Cherish your Bible. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Love your Bible. It's a gift from heaven itself. (laughs) What a privilege. What a privilege it is to have one in your own language. Let's not play with these precious words. These are the words of God. And you have a copy of it in your language, in your hand. And thousands have died to preserve them for you to this day. Thank God for the Bible. Thank God for your Bible. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Uh, Thank you for the Bible that we each own. It's a precious gift from you and only you. Thank you for giving us your word that we can trust it in our own language. There's so many people around this world, Lord. Only 10% of us in the world have a complete Bible. Help us to contribute to the advancement of your kingdom through the gospel of your son. Help us cherish your Bible. Help us love your Bible. These are your words, and it is a precious gift to have one. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We wouldn't be here without him. We thank you for sending him to live for us and to die for us. We love him, and we're so grateful. We ask this in his name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.